Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a segment about sleep. And I was going to start it off by telling you a really funny anecdote about Ariana Huffington, who has written about how great sleep is and how amazing it makes her feel and how productive it's going to make us all. She's even actually let the New York Times into her bedroom to show them how you do sleep right. But somewhere in the Googling of Ariana Huffington and the looking for that great anecdote, I accidentally ended up on a full-page ad for a medication called Belsamra which, according to the ad, is the only prescription sleep aid that specifically targets the action of orexin. Now, that might mean something to you. It means nothing to me. Except it does underscore something we all know. We are in a society obsessed with sleep. And part of the reason may be that the way we sleep now is actually relatively new. It's an invention that, like a lot of inventions, was necessitated by a technological revolution. Benjamin Reese has written about how modern sleep was invented. He's the author of Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. And he's a professor of English at Emory University. Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So if you told somebody, you know, gee, we we really don't sleep now the way we always have. This is not a constant, the sort of eight hours a night kind of thing. Um, And they said, okay, well, what was sleeping like? five or six hundred years ago, what would you say? It depends on, on where you were living. Sleep varies tremendously across cultures, and there's always been a real diversity of sleeping arrangements, sleeping styles, uh, sleeping configurations, sleeping durations, depending on when and where you lived. But virtually nothing about the way that we sleep now was practiced in almost anywhere in the globe before about the 19th century. Um, so the idea of the eight-hour sleeping In Europe and North America, apparently before the 19th century, most people slept in two shifts at night. And the historian Roger E. Kirch has really put that idea of what's called segmented sleep on the map. Hmm. And there would be an interval between the two major periods of sleep at night that was given over usually to ritual activity, either to prayer, dream interpretation, or lovemaking. It was thought to be a time of heightened fertility. So that was one huge shift in the way people slept. But another really, I think, equally dramatic shift was the separation of family members from each other during sleep, particularly children in each in their separate rooms. And they're supposed to stay there and sleep all through the night on their own in the dark. And And that is not easy to train kids to do that, by the way, as you as you I'm sure know, like, you know, everybody's so concerned with making sure their kids do the right thing. But it's not that easy to get them to like stay in their room all night and go to sleep when they're supposed to. Kids don't want to be alone. Young children don't want to be alone at night. Uh, You have to train them how to do it. And we spend an extraordinary amount of time, energy, and money in doing it. And I think the results have been mixed at best. Mm -hmm. For one thing, we have all these systems, uh, sleep training manuals, pediatric sleep experts, child psychologists telling us that the child has to be on a routine in their own room, apart from mommy and daddy or mommy and mommy or whatever configuration through the, through the night. And then they grow up and they're supposed to share a bed with somebody. <laughs> and I think it's no wonder that if, you, if you're trained so rigidly to sleep on your own that we have a culture of, you know, light sleepers, people who just can't handle somebody else 
being in the room right. or changes to their sleep routines. So let me go back to the segmented sleep that you were talking about. So you were saying, were you saying that was in Europe and, and in North America that people had like like shift one and shift two of their sleep? Yeah, well, there are examples from other cultures as well where this was common. But, you know, I, I don't think it's safe to say that that was a universal or default way of sleeping. There's too much variety. There's some cultures that have midday napping. There was a recent study of three uh, hunter-gatherer tribes today that haven't experienced some of the technological shifts that are thought to be behind the invention of eight-hour consolidated sleep. And, and they seem to package most of their sleep in one bundle. But segmented sleep, the two sleeps at night, was a prevailing or predominant model in North America and, and Europe um, before roughly the 19th century. So the, the idea now that's so common in sleep hygiene books that the best and most healthy way to sleep is to get yourself on a, on a very uh, exacting schedule where you do it basically the same time with the same rituals associated with it, you know, every night. Um, it really wouldn't make sense for somebody who is, say, living close to one of the poles, had to stay up for extended stretches during the summertime to catch enough game to last through the winter, and then during wintertime needed to sort of conserve that energy. It would make much more sense to, to sleep for an extended period in the wintertime. I have to touch on one more thing that you mentioned, which was the idea that people slept in beds commonly with multiple other people. And and this was not necessarily people with whom they were romantically linked. So just talk about how that worked and how they thought completely differently about sleeping and sleeping with other people. Right. Now, the, the idea that you would be a traveler, say, driving down a highway and stop for the night at a hotel on a long-distance trip and share a bed with a complete stranger, it is horrifying to most of us today, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's not commonly done. I, right. <laughs> it's, yeah, not common practice, probably. Yes. But that was common practice uh, in much of early modern Europe for travelers in the 17th and 18th century who went who went abroad and not even always, you know, people who were just trying to scrimp and save. Boarding houses and inns often had shared sleeping surfaces for strangers. And so that seems like a convergence of maybe a, a not very well-developed hospitality industry plus increased travel. But, um, but I think it gets to a, a broader truth about sleep, which is that in many parts of the world, sleep is considered a sociable activity. You have families sharing rooms and often sharing uh, sleeping surfaces. And in many cultures, you have rituals around um, communal gatherings that end with large numbers of people bedding down together. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Benjamin Reese, the author of Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. Okay, so let's talk about how the modern notion of sleep that we've that we've sort of touched on this whole time was invented. Where did the let's go to bed at 10 p.m. and let's wake up at 6 a.m. Where did that where did that idea come from? Well, there are a lot of forces at play, but I think most of them have to do with economics. In the early industrial era, say in the in the early 19th century, the idea that workers needed to show up on the factory floor at 
the same time every day regardless of season. That was one of the first things that that sort of wrenched people away from attuning their own sleep patterns to the rising and fall of the sun. Instead, you, you attuned your pattern to the factory bell. And later in the 19th century, as a certain number of industries started to work through the night, the notion of no, even normal sleep patterns that say, you know, where you had to be on the factory floor by 7.30 or 8, and then you would knock off at 5.30 or 6, um, that started to get stretched in in different ways, in processes like steel production and other industries that went through the night. You had to have people taking different shifts. Right. So what you had was workers who were just kind of systematically taken out of a, a kind of circadian rhythm with sleep and made to adjust it to factory life. And all kinds of things went along with that. Train schedules, school schedules for children became sort of standardized and constructed in a way that people really had to fall in line. So when you think about the transition from sort of various ways of sleeping to the more industrial revolution way of sleeping, the more standardized way, um, talk about some of the sources that you found that explained what that transition looked like or that, that illustrated that transition for you? Well, I'll tell you, the, the best source I found for it was really the most surprising one. At the time that I was putting together a course on sleep, I happened to be teaching an American literature survey and assigned Henry David Thoreau's Walden, uh, which was a book I had read probably a half dozen times before. I taught it to undergraduates and graduate students. And I was just amazed to to read it and realize that it was almost all about sleep and waking. And Thoreau write, wrote a lot about what was happening to sleep in his own time as Concord and surrounding areas were going through a big uh, transformation with the first factories being built and the, and, the, and the railroad line coming through town. And he wrote about when he, when he left his kind of idyllic cabin in the woods, if he'd go into town, he found what felt to him like a community of zombies, people who couldn't hmm. sleep and couldn't be awake. And they were strung out on coffee and <laughs> kind of jacked up on, by, you know, sensationalistic news stories and trying to get to work on time and hustling to get to the train. And, uh, and he said, I, you know, I've hardly met a man who is quite awake. Right. And his book felt to me very contemporary in that way. I was thinking it's a vision I feel like so many people would be familiar with, that people come into the office in the morning and they're like getting as much coffee as they can to sort of, you know, jumpstart the day and that whole thing. Yeah, and it was really one of the things that led Thoreau to his experiment in the woods. What He himself had been completely run down and um, had had a number of health problems and some, you know, had, had lost uh, his own brother, whom he was very close to, and went through a period of profound sleep disturbance. And he wanted to kind of recover his body's equilibrium. His family had actually run a pencil factory, and he had worked in the factory for a time, and just could not adjust himself to the rhythms of that kind of life, and wanted to, wanted to tr sort of experience his body as a natural object. You know, it, it depends on um, what statistics you look at. But if you look at sleep surveys today, many of them indicate that we now get less than 
eight hours of sleep and that that has fallen off in recent decades. You know that we used to get more if you went back four or five decades. We now get considerably less than eight hours. I don't know if you have particular views on on how we're doing with sleep, but what do you think has happened to our sleep over the last few decades? Well, I think the, the jury is out on whether in our particular society people sleep less than they did, say, 100 years ago, mm-hmm. 300 years ago. I, obviously, we, we don't have the kinds of technology that accurately measures sleep. And it's tricky. We're relying on diaries and things, and people aren't always great at keeping diaries. Yeah. Well, not only are they not great at keeping diaries, but it's impossible to tell somebody how much you slept. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that you know, we have a kind of language or discourse of sleep catastrophe today that we're, you know, we have a battle, a war on sleep, that everybody's poorly rested. We have over 2,500 sleep clinics. We have a multi-billion dollar sleep pharmaceutical industry, all kinds of gadgetry and products that are being sold to kind of cater to either different sleep disorders or to optimize your, your sleep. And I think a lot of people have the feeling that sleep is is somehow broken, but I don't I don't think that it's fair to say that most people in our society sleep worse than most people did a few hundred years ago. We have certain advantages that um, very few societies have had historically surrounding sleep. Like what? So, fire departments, you know, fireproof pajamas. Other than in relatively poor communities, we don't have major problems with vermin and other infestations, creepy crawlies at night. Dentistry has been great for sleep. I mean, if you try to go to sleep with a with a toothache. So, you know, we have a range of safe and comfortable sleeping accommodations for more people in, I think, 21st century U.S. and other highly developed parts of the world than were probably ever available before. But what I also think we have is new kinds of, of psychological pressures, technological pressures, mutations in the way we set up our work life that are putting pressure on sleep from different angles. Mm. And then the, the other problem is that we've inherited this set of rules about standardizing sleep that aren't fitting with the ways that we're supposed to operate while we're awake and and, and the mismatch between the rules of sleep that we've been discussing and the kinds of lives that people are trying to lead, I think creates a sense of pervasive disordered sleep. Hmm. Benjamin Reese is professor of English at Emory University. He's also the author of the new book, Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know where you can find more fascinating, in-depth conversations? Our website, innovationhub.org. We've got interviews there about everything from why you should not always trust your memories to what dating looked like in the 1920s. Yeah.